Welcome to the Digging to the Other Side podcast, where we talk about archaeology and related topics in North and South America through the perspectives of Asian hyphenated archaeologists. We'll give insights into how that affects not only our approach to the field of archaeology, but also how the field approaches us. So adjust your perspective and get ready to engage as we take archaeology and dig to the other side. Welcome to another episode of Digging to the Other Side. Today's episode, we have, I'm going to say, the famous Priscilla Weggers mm-hmm. and Renee Campbell of the Asian American Comparative Collection. As far as I know, they've been around, well, forever. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it. <laughs> yeah, so, and I'm very happy we have these two guests on this interview, because I, especially uh, Priscilla, because since you and I have been in contact since the late 90s. And so I'm just going to segue into asking you a question about the, uh, if you could give us a brief history about the Asian American Comparative Collection, because I know your time is short. Okay. Um, the Asian American Comparative Collection, I started it in the early 1980s because the University of Idaho was going to begin having archaeological excavations on Chinese sites um, in Idaho. And we knew from previous excavations in, say, mostly in California then, that we would likely find artifacts that were made in China, but we'd only find the small broken pieces of the artifacts that were left behind, because anything that was good and whole, they would, of course, take away with them when they left. So my goal was to get whole examples of the kinds of things first that would be found archaeologically that we knew from previous excavations in California. We knew the kinds of things that we would be likely to find. And so I started scouring antique shops and put out calls to people to donate things that they might have. And then from there, we kind of increased it to say that um, anything that might be um, made in China, um, used by Chinese in the United States that would be found in an archaeological or museum context, that we'd like to have an actual example or a photograph. And uh, so um, one one colleague in California said, did I know what I was getting into uh, with that statement? And of course, I did not. And, you know, sort of 40 so some years later, here we are. And uh, we have a really extensive collection now. Um, and it, the main um, things in it are Chinese and Japanese objects. We do have items from a number of other cultures. And uh, we have very little space, but we're, we, we sort of try to move, um, stack things upward because we can't stack things, you know, we're running out of shelf space. Um, so that's just a very brief um, introduction. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have related to that. Yeah, I watched your YouTube video actually showing the um, the collection. I noticed the shelves were literally overflowing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I, I should I should I just I should say quickly that uh, uh, all the co-hosts are here: um, Emma, Doctor Emma Yasui, mm-hmm. Brian. Brian, I forgot how you pronounce your last name, here, Brian. Baldeon. Baldeon. Anna Kuhn. Daryl, I forgot your last name again. <laughs> You may refer to me as Daryl, the mayor of yeah. Galmatown. Okay, it's Daryl Bustard. <laughs> yes, okay. All right. Just, just to give our listeners know that we're, we're pretty much all the co-hosts are here, except for Sarah. Mm-hmm. All right. Sarah Head. Magistrate yeah. Head. Yeah. <laughs> I, I 
I know the I know the comparative collection gone beyond just uh, artifacts. I mean, you, you as far as I know, you did a lot of research on on just Chinese American history too. Right. Well, we do have a, a large collection of bibliographical materials. Some are um, many are site reports from you know really obscure gray literature things. Um, others are things that help us identify artifacts. Um, we also have a big collection of images um, related to artifact identification and um, historical sites and so on. Uh, and I'm going to ask you this question. I know because we touched upon this on previous episodes. Can you? Can you explain to us these Chinese tunnels? Oh, <laughs> um, yes. Well, um, the Chinese the Chinese tunnels is it's a myth that's been developed by people who see underground uh, spaces and don't know what they were. But if they if there were Chinese people in that town or something, anything mysterious has to be Chinese. And so there's a logical explanation for what people call Chinese tunnels. And it's because when buildings were built, they were built with uh, spaces in front that allowed merchandise to be let down into the basement of the building. And so sometimes you'll see metal doors in the sidewalks that had, there was a ramp there to let the goods down in. Sometimes you'll see glass blocks that have been colored purple by the sun, and that was to allow light to penetrate into these spaces. And they're actually called sidewalk vaults. It's an architectural term. But of course, people don't know that term, and they see these and think, oh, this these have to be Chinese. But of course, when the building was built, the Chinese were not occupants of the building. They did not build the building, and they did not, you know, use these well if they later used the building they may have used these spaces for storage and things and in some cases you know, had maybe a business or something in them but there's no evidence that there were ever chi- so-called Chinese tunnels anywhere and we should talk and we should talk about this myth started I think from what I understand this myth they, I think they start because of the head tax and they were saying these Chinese people were hiding in these tunnels during the head tax I don't know about that that's not yeah. I, I hadn't heard that I mean and, and of course in Canada things were different I mean you had uh, yeah. yeah you had the head tax and so on we had some of that here um, like there was a, a minor every, every Chinese in Idaho every Chinese person was considered a minor no matter what they did and uh, there was a, a Chinese minors tax on them we didn't have a head tax um, in Idaho, well, in 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 the United States, like you did in um yeah, and I should say the story goes here in here in Canada because we have a head tax, right? Um, there there were there were no new influx of a of a Chinese children and stuff like that. But for some reason, the story goes like any Chinese person that was born in Canada, they were staying in the tunnels until money was gathered, which is five hundred dollars Canadian that they could afford to pay the head tax. And as soon as as soon as five hundred dollars was gathered. Then this new Chinese person will emerge from the tunnels. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And also these tunnels, all, especially in the town of Moose Jaw in Saskatchewan, they also associate the tunnels with um, Al Capone. Oh. <laughs> Round running day. So I always wonder, I always get confused. Like, was there any conflicts between the two groups? I don't think that. Well, see, in, in my in my opinion, and from what I know of, you know, underground spaces and Chinese in various areas, um, it 
it's a way of really demonizing the Chinese to say that they mm-hmm. actually lived underground and, you know, couldn't emerge. There was there were unwritten laws that said the Chinese could not be above ground after dark and so on and so on. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, these all these tunnels are just myths. Oh. There have been, you know, there have been different projects that look into these these various myths. Um, Because they are, they're very prevalent, you know, and so there have been archaeological excavations in different places that have looked for them or tried to find evidence. And and every time it's, you know, it's something else that gets misinterpreted in the future. So um, steam tunnels are really commonly misinterpreted as as Chinese, so-called Chinese tunnels. So are the sidewalk vaults that Priscilla was talking about. Sometimes Mm -hmm. even World War II bunkers have been misinterpreted as as so-called Chinese tunnels. Um, yeah, so there's when they're investigated, there's often another logical reason for those to be there. I get the impression they consider the Chinese as the mole people or something like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> something unique and exotic, I guess. <laughs> so I, I should ask Priscilla, just to, I, if you could give a bit about your background. Oh, well. Yeah, I'm going backwards on those, am I? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. Um, yeah. I. Um, I have a degree in um, historic archaeology. Well, it's actually my degree is actually in history from the University of Idaho with a specialization in historical archaeology. And uh, so um, that's, you know, that's really my background. However, I got interested in Asian archaeology, Asian culture and so on, because I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Thailand a number of years ago. And I have done some travel in Southeast Asia and the Far East. Um, and uh, when I came, when I moved up to Idaho to actually get into archaeology, there there weren't any people, well, there were people doing, um, interested in artifacts, in, and then at that time, Chinese artifacts, um, and but they were really interested just in ceramics, and of course, there are a lot of other artifacts too. I mean, there's opium smoking paraphernalia, tobacco paraphernalia, um, and um, gaming pieces, um, all sorts of things, and so I decided that I wanted to be interested in all of it. And then as a result of that, I got work as, you know, doing artifact analysis where people would send me things and say, you know, what is this? And um, and then also directing archaeological excavations of Chinese sites. And then uh, it was about this time, too, that I was starting the Asian American Comparative Collection, which we it started out as the Chinese Comparative Collection. And then it was not long before a local gentleman gave me a Chinese, I mean, a Japanese rice bowl that he picked up in the forest in Idaho. And it's like, Japanese, what is this doing here? And of course, then when you start looking into it, well, as the Chinese were persecuted and driven out, then the Japanese were invited in to do the work that, you know, nobody, the Euro-Americans didn't want to do. And so there were Japanese in Idaho very early on in 1890s and so on. And uh, so then it, it then we changed the name to the Asian Comparative Collection, and then people thought, well, this is you know you know wonderful Asian uh, uh, art type objects. It's like no, these are people's everyday objects. So then the name changed to Asian American Comparative Collection, and then that's the name that we are now and have been known by for many years. No, I got another question. Um, I know I know one of your pet projects is polybeamers. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. You want to talk about a bit about polybeamers? I mean, because 
it's unique in that she's she's a Chinese American woman. Yes, um, and out west. Yes, she was forcibly brought to the United States in 1872 when she was about 19, and she was taken to the small community, a mining community of Warren, Idaho, where she had been purchased for $2,500 for a Chinese man who um, was a miner and uh, had been a miner, ran a saloon, this kind of thing, and she. She was his concubine, um, and um, she was able to. We don't know how she was able to escape from him, but it, she's in. She came again in 1872, and then the first real mention of her is in the 1880 census when she's living with a Euro-American man named Charlie Bemis, whom she later married. And so we don't know what happened to the Chinese man who owned her. Um, we presume that he either died or went back to China without her. And so she and Charlie Bemis married in 1894 and they settled on the Salmon River where Charlie had a mining claim and they had a big garden and raised you know, fruits and vegetables. And it was a mining area. People would come down to the river, cross over to the other side and so on. And uh, so she would sell them fruits and vegetables and eggs. And then people also would come down the Salmon River in um, boats and um, then stop and visit and so on. And so she became quite a well-known celebrity. And uh, she died, in, well, Charlie died in 1922, and she died in 1933. And just recently, and maybe Renee could tell you a little bit about this, um, last year we had an, Renee directed an archaeological excavation um, at Polly Bemis's, at what is now the Polly Bemis Ranch, which is private. Wow. So over to Renee. <laughs> Well, I, I well, I just want that's I'm, that's why I kind of bombard you with questions because I know you want to get going. So I I I could I could ask you a couple more. Or you're sure. all, that's yeah, it yeah, no, 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 no. I I reckon I can hang out with you until about you know six forty five because we didn't start till like six fifteen. So okay, yeah. Because I, I know this collection's been around for forty years. I, what do you vision this collection to? to be in the future. Whoa, in the future. Well, I mean, really sort of more of the same, but um, more more outreach because right now it's, you know, I'm a volunteer. We're open one day a week, one afternoon a week, really. I'm a volunteer. Um, we have a woman who does cataloging and one day a week she gets paid, Renee gets paid, but Renee's only part-time. And I envision a whole lot, you know, a full-time person in the Asian American Comparative Collection, or at least half-time who is able to do outreach to more to communities and schools and so on and encourage people to come right now we're we are kind of because we're a very small facility we don't have the time to really host visitors and so on so we're very low-key but I think that if once we pub start publicizing it and people realize what a wonderful resource this is for research into Asian American artifacts history and culture and so on that will become even more popular than we are now because I know that for a while, because I was a subscriber to the Asian American Comparative Collection, I, I presume that that's still oh the news yes right we now. have the newsletter comes out four times a year. It's only available in a print version, and that's because we send out um, we don't want to have it available online because we send out in the December issue an envelope to for people to subscribe, and we don't want to give it. We're not giving it away free. We uh, is but it's still only ten dollars a year. 
year and for four issues, which is such a big bargain. And uh, <laughs> um, sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sold. And uh, right now, and um, so Renee has been writing most of the newsletters lately, and I do maybe one a year. And every now and again, as the the June issue, we'll have a guest um, have a guest editor, one of our graduate students who's been working with us, and she'll do the she'll she's writing the June newsletter. And the reason it costs ten dollars is because we're a, a nonprofit, so that money is actually what pays for my salary and the other people that work there one day a week, and pays for our supplies and 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 everything, but but the facility that we get for free from the university. And so is everything is everything held at the University of Idaho. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's pretty nice of them. Yeah, they, they yeah, do. Yeah, right. That's that is. I mean, they do give us the storage space, right? I mean, yes, it is small, and we're always constantly at, trying to get more. Um, so, yeah, we're very grateful for that. Admittedly, with more outreach, hopefully, you guys can expand. That will. That would be great. Yes. And have you been getting a lot of report from from uh, I guess the local Asian American community or other Asian American societies or communities? Um, we do. In fact, early on, we did get quite a bit of support from the Palouse Asian American Association. I've been a member of them for quite a while. Renee's a member as well. But of course, with COVID, we haven't met for a long time and so on. But when I first started this, they did give us, um, you know, they gave us money to buy objects and books and things for the collection. So they were. A big a big help in helping us get started um we do um when we give talks in the community and elsewhere in idaho um we can take artifacts with us for kind of like a little show and tell um we loan artifacts like for example there is some on loan right now to the um, idaho mining museum in boise um and uh, we've so this is part of the outreach that we do and would be able to do more of given, you know, more, um, you know, more time open and, and that kind of thing and more personnel working. Okay. I don't want to take too much of your time, but anybody else want to have any questions? Because I think I might interrupt Daryl. No, 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 no. I don't have a question just yet. Uh, well, I'm still thinking. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to say, I'm going to say for me, when I discovered your collection, I was thrilled because um, as a, as a young archaeologist, I, I was just learning. I was just, I didn't realize your comparative collection existed at all. And I think that's where I touched base with you. Oh, probably. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that, that was a long time ago. And so a lot of things has changed since then. And I'm going to assume that your comparative collection became, I, I think a lot became a great resource. Oh, absolutely. It is. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I, I, so I guess you get a lot of researchers coming to you or, or looking at or asking about the collections. I mean, I know I have when one of my colleagues was working on a site here in the Rocky Mountains and, and I think Renee was a big help in uh, answering his uh, inquiries and stuff like that. So so I guess that's, that's that, that keeps you guys busy, that keeps the comparative collection pretty relevant. Yeah, right. Well, and we do get we do get email inquiries and Renee has been wonderful about replying to them. Um, she she has been. I, I got to say she has been. It's, you, you're pretty much on the ball on that. Yes, <laughs> she very much. Yeah, I have to give her a lot of credit for that. And she goes way, she goes above and beyond with the research that she does in replying to people. But right now, as we said, um, she is writing her dissertation this summer and she's not available. And I'm traveling a lot this summer too. So uh, we're hoping to keep the inquiries down for the, for the summer. 
So we shouldn't tell people to email you this, well, <laughs> this summer. Not to, well, when 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 this when school starts in the fall, you know, autumn, late August, absolutely, be, uh, late August would be a good time, and you could certainly mm. refer them to the University of Idaho's. Um, Asian American Comparative Collection website, and Perfect. we would be happy to mail out if they want to contact us. Um, me, you know, by email, um, p weggers at uh, universe at p weggers at uidaho.edu. I'd be happy to mail them a brochure and a complimentary copy of our newsletter. Nice. Yeah, and we're, we're going to put all the links. Okay. Yeah. Everything on, on on the. Uh, the website. Oh, great. So okay, good. Thank you. We should, have, that, yeah. so. we should have all of this available in show notes. But but yeah, also on that too, in, in what ways exactly can the AACC assist researchers? Like perhaps there are students out there who want access to certain collections mm-hmm. or perhaps even archaeologists in CRM or state level who are dealing with a collection in, mm-hmm. in-house, in their own house and need to contact an expert. Right. No, we do all that. I mean, you know, we do research for people or we, comp- you know, we compare or the, like they can send us a photo of something and say what is this and if we know we'll tell them and if, if we don't know we may have people that we can ask who would know um, okay. so uh, yeah we're happy to help where we can very very cool uh, I'm just oh. our research policy I mean a lot of what we do is research but if people want to email us inquiries or come in and make appointments and see things our, our general rule is is you get one hour free no matter who you are and we're happy to help if you make an appointment and come in then that's free also um and student research is always always free so we do whatever we can for students for however long and then beyond an hour if it's a crm firm um we usually just ask that you pay our staff salary while they do the research for you which is pretty minimal um and that's that's, just again because we're a nonprofit. but right and that's students from answers we can yeah, yeah. So, and that's students from any university, or does does it have to be the University of Idaho? Oh, anybody, yeah, any university. Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to ask a question there, Daryl? I'm just wondering, like, how expansive, like, chronologically is this collection? Because when I was watching the video, I kind of looked at some of the objects, and I'm like, hey, I know that. I could buy that at the local grocery store. (laughs) 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 And that's probably where I got it. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really interested because I I come from a more art background, so a more more art historical background. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering how... Can, can your collection be used to identify not just what it is, but sort of where it is chronologically in the development of its art style or anything like that? Well, it, you know, it's kind of interesting because especially with the Chinese artifacts, the, the forms, the shapes, you know, um, were they just over time, they just lasted for many, many hundreds of years in some cases. Um, but we do have items that are really old. I mean, that really aren't related to archaeology in the Pacific Northwest, but they're hundreds of years old and maybe from China or something that people have given to us um, as it just, you know, we're as teaching research and study collection we're not a museum and so we have all these things for you know people that you know turns out might have an interest in them um, but yes and we do have things that are very modern so we kind of collected across the spectrum um, so uh, so yes now I got a question that and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether this is um, as we can see in the last couple of years we see we see a rise in anti anti-asian sentiment yes, definitely and so 
I just want to know, have your website, have your collection been affected by that? Um, no, not in that sense. No. Um, in the sense of, you know, uh, of us being persecuted um, on the basis of being an Asian emphasis collection. No. Um, I, you know, we do know of, you know, incidents that have happened to people. Mostly it's just, it, it's not, you know, physical violence. It's just people who are ignorant. And I saw on the website that you have a collection of past anti-Asian propaganda. We do, yes, some, right. Yeah, which is super fascinating because I think that really brings home just how acceptable some of that was at the time or how rampant it really was. And and I wouldn't and also how little some things have changed. Right. And I wouldn't say was because some of these things that we have are very recent. And mm-hmm. um you know, and you can still find these things um online, you know, if you look, you know, sort of uh, slanted eye glasses and um yeah. you know sort of Fu Manchu mustaches and things like this. Yes. So it's still it's still out there. And just I mean, people are just ignorant. But still, it's it's kind of neat that you still have those artifacts from that period. And so we could go back and take a look how much what happened back then and how much hasn't changed. Right, that's right. Right. And, you know, and, you know, we don't really know what, you know, we kind of collect everything because we don't really know what people are going to want to use or do and with it. And so, um, you know, I, I just figure we can always get rid of things, but it, once things are gone, we can't get them. Um, right. You know. And have you, have you, have you, have the Asian American collection make any, I mean, like, you're so close to the Canadian border, I'm mm-hmm. going to say. <laughs> have, have you given me any associ- uh, uh, association on the Canadian side of things? I, I know a lot of our history is similar, but also a lot of our history is, is dissimilar, too. Well, we do have um, um, on our sites, you know, sites to visit and things like that. We do have a, a little section on Canada, um, but um, we haven't really. I mean, if we were invited, for example, to come to Canada, and I mind you, invited means somebody has to help us financially. <laughs> if we were, you know, we could bring artifacts, you know, say someone were doing an archaeological excavation of a Chinese site, we could bring examples examples of typical artifacts that they would be likely to find for, you know, just a show and tell for the, um, the excavators and things. So yeah, there, I mean, there are certainly possibilities that could be explored and all you have to do is ask and say, you know, can you do this? And we can say, you know, yes or no. And this is what it'll cost. All right. Anybody else have other questions? Okay. What we're going to do here, we're going to take a break. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and would like to support the podcast, please take a minute to give us a thumbs up or rate the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Leaving a brief comment also helps us engage with our audience, and it's good for the algorithm too. If you want to know more about the topics we're discussing, be sure to head over to our anchor site and look for the show notes for this episode. Links will be in the description. Thank you again, and let's get back to the show. Hi everybody! Welcome to uh, welcome welcome back to our <laughs> podcast. Um, oh, down. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I do apologize that uh, the the first the first half an hour uh, Priscilla didn't Priscilla couldn't stay too long, and I should we all should say bye to Priscilla. So everyone say bye to Priscilla. Bye. 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 See you. Bye. 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 <laughs> and so now we have. Renee Campbell, and we're going to grill her. I'm, I'm a PhD student. I'm used to it. 
Yeah. <laughs> so as far as I as far as I know, you're you're inheriting the AACC. That's that's what that's what I'm gonna look at. So <laughs> let's let's tell us a bit about yourself, there, Renee. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I am a research associate at the Asian American Comparative Collection, and um, I have been for a couple years. I I actually my background is in um, CRM archaeology, and I work primarily in the Pacific Northwest. Um, in historical archaeology specifically. And then my introduction to Asian American archaeology was really mostly chance or maybe statistical probability, but I was working in CRM for a company and we discovered a pre-World War II Japanese American farmstead. And um, that I was the the historical archaeologist for that company. And they said, do you know how to analyze, you know, Japanese material culture? And I was like, no, because I got trained on the East Coast. (laughs) Um, But I looked around and found the Asian American Comparative Collection and Priscilla Wagers and figured out how to how to um, get through that project anyways. But it, it that's what kind of introduced me to the topic. And then um, from there, I decided to go back and get what I thought was just going to be my master's degree and has turned now into a PhD. Um, so I did my master's on pre-World War II Japanese American sites. And then now I'm getting my PhD and I'm looking at um, archaeological sites from southern Idaho that have to do with Chinese miners at the turn of the 20th century. And I've been fortunate enough to work with Priscilla while I've been at the University of Idaho. Um, I started first, you know, doing directed studies and things under her and then um, have have been working part-time as a research associate for the last couple of years, which has been great. Such a, such a huge learning opportunity for me. Um, in addition to giving me a little funding while I get my research done. <laughs> Always good. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm kind of curious about this Japanese farmstead. Can you, is it, can you tell us a little bit about it or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, so I was working for a, company out of Portland, Oregon, and we were doing just like a normal pedestrian survey um, on some land that was transferring hands. uh, And it was a plowed field. And so we found all these little bits of porcelain in the plowed field and documented it as a site and suggested that we do some testing and go back. Um, During testing, we started finding, you know, in plowed fields, you find like ceramic kibble. essentially just these tiny little fragments of things. And, and I, I think I mentioned, right, I was trained on the East Coast and, and sort of the convention in East Coast archaeology is you find a bunch of porcelain and you think, oh, this must have been a pretty wealthy person had a bunch of porcelain um, ceramics or at least was interested in the presentation of wealth if they had a, a big collection of porcelain rather than cheaper earthenwares or stonewares. Um, and so that was kind of my initial impression of the site. But then when we started doing more testing and the background research, we figured out that it was actually the farmstead was open or owned by a woman whose husband had left her with her five kids and she moved off the property and leased it to a Japanese American family. Um, and they lived there for 30 years prior to World War II and farmed it. And there was actually a fairly large um, community of what they called truck farmers in sort of the outskirts of Portland pre-World War II. And they would farm vegetables and bring them into the markets in town and Supply restaurants. Um, so it was a pretty common thing, but it wasn't on my radar at all when we were doing the survey until we started finding bigger pieces. And I, I realized, oh, it's Japanese material culture. And, and that in itself was just like such a realization for me that I should have been aware of this whole thing that existed, but I wasn't. Um, and it also challenged sort of this underlying assumption of, oh, well, porcelain means like wealthy household. And, and there's other interpretations for that. It really was kind of um, the thing that made me want to go back to grad school and do more research. Did you what, what what kind of what kind what kind of grains or what kind of crops you were growing? 
Um, so most likely, we don't know exactly what this particular, th this family was the Tanaka family. And we don't know exactly what they were growing. But from other people in the area, from like the oral histories and the um, that we did and the documentation, it, it more, mostly was things like strawberries. There was a lot of berry growing and then um, crops um, that could be easily rotated like peas and carrots and, and, and other things like that. Um, but but lettuce greens, things like that, that could be brought into market um, and sold or or sold to restaurants seasonally. And because it, in the pre-World War II era, um, first generation Japanese American immigrants, you know, were were barred legally from citizenship. So most of them leased land. If if they had children that were born in the United States, then under United States law, they could the, the children could technically own land. Um, but but you had to be a family that had a, a was lucky enough to have a child that you could put the land under. And so it's because a lot of these people were leasing their land. They weren't crops like orchards or things that you had to put a lot of investment in because there was always the possibility that you could get kicked off your property or leasing from someone. And, and some people stayed for very long periods of time. But I think that 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 sort of threat of not actually owning it meant that a lot of times people grew smaller crops that you could rotate quickly or that you wouldn't sink a bunch of money into and then end up losing if if your landlord changed their mind about who they wanted to rent to. Anybody has any questions? I know I, I interrupt people again. Okay. Well, um, I'm actually, so I noticed on the website you had the Meiji report for Idaho and I'm, um, I'm trying to read a little bit of it. I'm wondering how important, so I know that Dr. Weggers mentioned that the part of the documentation, documentary evidence used to study polybamus used the U.S. Census. How important is the home country, like the origin country, rather, the origin country documentation, origin countries like government documentation and records of these uh, individuals? How important is that to sort of the study and, and the, the purpose of the collection? Um so that's a good question. I think, you know, um, a lot of that documentation, if it's from China or Japan, could be in Chinese or Japanese. And, and we primarily, we do have of um, Japanese and Chinese language materials in the collection, but we primarily have English language materials since that's um, what most of our researchers are, are using. Um, but... But like, for example, that Meiji report is in English, right? It's been translated. Um, and, and. Oh, it's in English? Because I'm looking at the Japanese version. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, wait, I'm, I'm, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm looking too low on the report. Let me see. I'm going to have to look. Okay. okay I'm gonna have to look. <laughs> we do have things translated in the collection. So it could be that the Japanese or that, yeah, the Japanese version is on there, but not the translation that we have. Um, but that's one of the things that we do is we, you know, we have translators on staff who will translate documents or or particularly like artifact marks if if we have chinese or japanese ceramics that have makers marks or bottles that have embossing that's in chinese or japanese um, and then we keep records of those so when people email us questions about have you seen this bottle before and do you know what it says then we can kind of go through our collection and compare and if it's a new one then we have someone translate it for us so are these, are these just local translators you guys have like well, yeah, and we we um so right now we have a, a really awesome Japanese translator who's worked for us for a number of years, um, and she she actually lives in Oregon, but she does it remotely. She's a was a grad student with me actually. She's a trained archaeologist, um, and she uh, is Japanese herself. Uh, and then we've had Chinese translators on staff in the past. We don't have one right now, um, but we use there's a local uh, Taoist hermitage that we that. Um, we can pay them to do translations for us. So right now we're kind of, as Priscilla mentioned, we're a really small facility. And, and because we're nonprofit, um, the, the money issue is always 
paying people. And then, and then if it's not a full-time position, you know, finding people who, who want to just do translations part-time. Um, and, and it's kind of a specialized field, you know, a lot of times translators, you don't need to just know the language. You have to know like the older version of characters. Oh, yeah. since a lot of these things are historical. And then you also kind of have to know the context in order to be able to guess at what the contents of the bottle or something might be, if that makes sense. Have to know a little bit about the history too. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm looking at the Japanese, like, like the original document. I'm like, it, it kind of weirds me out looking at it. It, <laughs> it feels like it's written weird to me. <laughs> but again, this is like a 200 year old document. So yeah, yeah it's to be expected. Yeah. Language has changed yeah. over 200 years, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, a little before the break, Priscilla talked about uh, Asian American associations that the AACC has partnered with in the past. But in what ways does the AACC collaborate with descendant communities? Um, and and exactly how? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So we, because we're a research facility, we, um, we primarily are like open to other people doing research, but, but have done some, you know, specific projects on our own. So there's kind of a variety of ways that we, we interact with um, people of in, in the area and then, and through the newsletter, I think is one of the bigger ways that we do outreach to sort of larger Asian American communities in Moscow, Idaho, probably won't surprise you. It's pretty small and um, (laughs) there is an Asian American community here, but it's also very small. Um, And so, so we, you know, have done things in the past that involve um, Boise has a couple Chinese descendant organizations. Um, So, you know, they have been involved with projects with us. They were involved in our, the the celebrations for Polybemus Day um, uh, celebrated that. And then um, we also have been involved in say like um, Chinese, you know, history museums in San Diego or California. We we sometimes um, do projects with them or, you know, share information from them. Mm -hmm. But again, if, if, if it's not a project we're doing, then then mostly it's um, it's sort of electronic communication. Right. But primarily within the region, within the Pacific Northwest, trying to reach out and branch out a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, we try to do things like we try to do public presentations. And, and when we have the money, we try to travel to, you know, like Portland or something. And um, COVID has actually been really interesting for that because <laughs> we've been doing, we've actually been able to do more um, kind of virtually uh, with other partners in, in different areas. I- I know, I know that after we talked to Chelsea Rose our last episode, there, um, and the AACC, there there seems to be like a, I get a feeling it seems to be like a, a a a great focus on Asian American history in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, well, and, there's a lot and, of. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I see my my impression is like to me, I always thought the the greater Asian American population is always in California or Hawaii. Mm. <laughs> Shut up. Anyway. <laughs> You're just yeah. jealous. We have I jealous because you guys are always sunny down there. <laughs> okay, I hate you guys down there. Yeah. Oh my god! Well, it is true that I think I think both Hawaii and California. You know, California certainly for a long time sort of led the field of Asian American archaeology, just because a lot of it was being done specifically in urban locations too. You know, um, because of the way that archaeology works and CRM works, a lot of times it's it's development projects. So rural locations, unless it's agencies like the Forest Service or the BLM doing projects, um, really, it just the, the way the archaeology works, a lot of more focus kind of falls onto urban centers and in California, because there's such a, you know, a larger population and things. But I think it is true that there's a lot of really interesting research going on right now, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. Um, 
And I think that's great because it gives us, you know, another perspective on Asian American history. Well, was there, historically, was there a big population of Japanese and Chinese and other Asian Americans? Yeah, it's like, certainly. Um, and a lot of, I mean, certainly in Washington and Oregon, um, you saw large waves of Chinese immigrants followed by Japanese immigrants um, that worked in things like the railroad industry or the logging industry or farming, as I mentioned. Um, in Idaho, too, there were very large first Chinese populations and then a smaller Japanese um, American population that came in after. But, you know, for example, the area that I'm looking at for my dissertation is down in, in southern Idaho in a, a mining community called the Boise Basin. And in 1870, 50% of the population had been born in China. It was a huge um, Chinese immigrant population. And there were areas in Idaho where it was over 50% of the population was of Chinese ancestry in the 1870s. And, and, and that's one of those things that you tell people who don't know much about Idaho's his history, and it's surprising. Um, and that's part of the reason I think that it's, it's good that we're finally sort of trying to get it out there. Yeah. And like, I have a bit of a question, but I don't know if this is answerable. But I was reading about the Kuski imprisonment mm. camp for the Japanese I almost said Japanese Canadians because that's where I'm at, but <laughs> that's not what not it was. white. <laughs> yeah, the, the Japanese imprisonment camp, and it had a pretty large population. Um, and I was now I'm curious how many might have chosen to stay in the Idaho region yeah. after the camps dissolved. I think you know Idaho was the site of both Kuski, which was a uh, internment camp in the sense that it was non-citizens mostly who were there or completely who were there. Um, but then also in Southern Idaho, there was a, there was a incarceration camp as well. And so during World War II, there were Japanese populations that were forcibly brought to Idaho. Um, and I do think I have met a number of people whose families stayed in Idaho after the war because either they had lost their property back home or it was hard to go home to, or they had taken jobs in the you know, one of the ways to get out of the camp was to take a job and say like a sugar beet farm or something and had um, sort of made different ties to, to different communities. And so I have met people whose families stayed on after after World War II in Idaho for that reason. I'm not sure off the top of my head, like what the numbers. On that yeah, are. it's got to be hard. Well, and I did see on the website, too, that the center has a general call for any descendants or people who know anything about it to contact Mm -hmm. About Kuski? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Priscilla has done, um, she's actually written two books about Kuski. Um, and so she's done a number of interviews with um, descendants of, of people who were uh, imprisoned there. But she's always looking to, I mean, to speak to more families. And um, she has copies of most of the government records of, of the people who were incarcerated there. And so um, we've, we've been contacted by people who want to see those records without having to go through, jump through the hoops of going to the National Archives and requesting copies and things. We love to yeah. send that out to family members. Um, That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I've looked at uh, getting records of my own family from the Canadian government and mm -hmm. it's like, I don't have time for this right now. <laughs> <laughs> Traveling to, you know, Washington, D.C., depending on where you are, is really expensive. And, no, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm just kind of I'm again thinking about like the Boise Basin where 50 percent were population were of Chinese origin. I'm just wondering that has to leave a mark of some kind. I, I'm I'm kind of thinking um, because of Dr. Yasui's work. Like, did they bring in plants? Did they like kind of 
almost permanently change some of the like the like the the plant life there like just because of the preferences that's a really good question um you know the first thing that came to mind when you asked that is just mining itself changes the landscape so dramatically that's true that's true (laughs) that um you know you drive around the boise basin and you just see like tailings piles ditches tailings piles ditches tailings piles ditches (laughs) so they absolutely all those miners left just an incredible physical presence on the landscape. Um, but there were Chinese gardeners who had small gardens outside of town and would, would grow vegetables and definitely imported um, different foods. And I know in other places, in, like in California, there are, there are documented cases of um, some of those plants then like remaining and growing. And I can't off the top of my head think of any in Idaho. Um, but I also heard, you know, there are, there's like a species of turtle that, Chinese immigrants brought with them and would keep in ponds um, in California that has now become native to, or not native, but now lives in California because of that um, early contact. So I'm going to have to find this turtle now. <laughs> yeah. So I know Priscilla touched upon it. So what, what happened to a lot of the, uh, the Asian American population in Pacific Northwest? Well, for, for Chinese Americans, the exclusion act um, definitely impacted populations. And then um, also, you know, mining, the mining industry in and of itself is, is pretty volatile. So you have that boom and bust economy where people flood into an area and then most of them leave. And so the Boise Basin now has, is, has two towns that are still towns and it has a series of ghost towns. You know, it has very few people in general. Um, a lot of the, the Chinese miners that had been there probably would have moved on after the, the rush. So they could have gone to Montana or other places. Um, Many of them went back to China because um, they weren't allowed to bring family members over and and they weren't allowed to be citizens. And after the Exclusion Act, it became increasingly hard to leave the country and come back in um, without proving that you were or providing documentation that you were a merchant or something like that. Um, And then a lot of people from the Boise Basin actually moved to the city of Boise, which is about now it's like 45 minutes away. Um, Back then, it would have taken a little longer. But but there's a, a fairly big population of, of Chinese immigrants that then sort of moved into cities and, and into other industries as the mining industry died. Are there any other um, historical Asian American uh, ethnic groups in the area? Yeah. So, it's, I mean, Idaho has, um, I think Priscilla touched on this too. You know, there were, there were Japanese immigrants that came in after um, when the Exclusion Act started sort of um, restricting the number of Chinese immigrants that could come into the West Coast. Japanese immigrants certainly came in and filled in Many of those industries like worked on the railroads after Chinese immigrants and sometimes consecutively with Chinese immigrants um, worked in other industries and lumber industries in Idaho, um, you know, contributed to the farming economy in many places. Um, And then and then really post 1965, because that's when modern immigration laws changed. um, Idaho has had an influx of of um, other Korean, Vietnamese, uh, South Asian groups since that time. So, so really, in between, you know, the turn of the 20th century and then 1965 was another kind of watershed moment for more Asian populations. Any Filipinos, just for Anna <laughs> and, <Darryl>. and me. <laughs> I keep forgetting about you, Daryl. There's a pretty big uh, community in Coeur d'Alene, I believe. That's as far as I know about that. <laughs> I. I, I to me, there's a big community of us everywhere. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, so, c- kind of rewinding back to, to Tommy's question about other cultural groups, were there sort of specific 
Chinese or specific Japanese cultural groups that were that came to Idaho because the most famous one is the the, the Chinese groups that come out of the the, the Canton area, the the Guangdong yeah, province yeah. area. Guangdong province, yeah. Yeah, but Polybemis, I was reading an article specifically came from northern China. So was, was there specific groups or is that just sort of an outlier? Oh, that's a I good think question. Polybemis is an outlier in that sense. Most most um, of the the Chinese immigrants that came in in the uh, late 1800s were from the Pearl River re- River region of China. They were from Guangdong. But um, Polybemis, she we think that she was from or Priscilla's research suggests that she was um, from Northern China. Um, and, and that's based on where she said that she was from in the census records. Um, so when, when the, the person came around and took the census, they would ask you where you're from. And often they just say for Chinese immigrants, they simply say China, China, China. But in Polly Bemis's um, instance, for whatever reason, they recorded that she had said she was from somewhere near Beijing and in, in northern um, China. And so we think that she was probably from a minority group from northern China, which um, makes her unusual also in that she wouldn't have spoken the same language as the rest of the Chinese immigrants that That's she right. I was going to ask you that, yeah. with when she came to Idaho. So most Chinese immigrants in that era were Cantonese speakers and, and Polly Bemis probably wouldn't have even spoke Mandarin, maybe Mandarin, but probably a different dialect of it. Um, so she would have been, you know, sort of doubly isolated in that she couldn't, she had never spoken English before. And then she was also the, the Chinese immigrants that lived in the same community as her spoke it also spoke a totally different language than she did. And that's one of the reason that people sort of um, think that she might have learned English so quickly is because it, it was the one language that maybe she could sort of speak to both groups of people in because she didn't know Cantonese when she arrived in Idaho. Huh. Yeah. No, I, I'm just, no, because you're right. Because like she wouldn't, she would not know how to speak Cantonese. And if, if she's one, one of the minority groups, like just say, say for instance, she was either, either she was Chui or Mao, you know, you're right. She would never know how to speak Mandarin. So mm-hmm. I, I just find it funny. I just find it interesting about uh, what she was purchased. As just as a concubine, right? By by, let's just say a, a Cantonese yeah. man, right? Yeah. So, but she made her way. She did, yeah. But it's, it was, I think, one of the things that's pretty incredible about her. Um, and my my understanding is that you know she she was smuggled into Portland, we believe, and then someone purchased her in Portland and then rode her by mule train out to Idaho, where she met the man that um, would be her her first or the person who had purchased her in Idaho, who brought her bought, brought her to Idaho. Um, so she might not have been able, been able to even communicate with him for all we know. All I can think is, can you imagine? <laughs> all right, we're gonna go on another break, and then we're on that go- happy note. <laughs> 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 and we're gonna go towards our last half hour, and we're gonna continue grilling Renee here. See you on the other side. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and would like to support the podcast, please take a minute to give us a thumbs up or rate the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Leaving a brief comment also helps us engage with our audience, and it's good for the algorithm too. If you want to know more about the topics we're discussing, be sure to head over to our Anchor site and look for the show notes for this episode. Links will be in the description. Thank you again, and let's get back to the show. Hey everybody, welcome to the last half an hour of this podcast, and we're going to continue grilling Renee because it's fun. <laughs> so, 
one so so we talked a little bit earlier about outreach and your your plans for the center moving forward but one aspect of of your website that you know draws my eye and I'm very interested in is the uh the oral history section mm. and all of that really really great work that you guys are doing with those transcriptions of those interviews and all of the the different narrators that you guys were able to reach out to and I'm wondering if there's any plans with this particular project moving forward. Um, you know, what kinds of people are you trying to reach with this? I'm, I'm always interested in this kind of work because for those of us who really want to learn more about, you know, our, you know, the people we came from or even just, you know, for me, trying to find other people like me, like similar to this podcast and our work on this podcast, trying to find more archaeologists with similar background to me. It's same thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, trying to reach those people. And I, I wondered if, because these transcripts are amazing, but I wondered if you guys were even thinking about filming any of these mm -hmm. interviews and putting them out to reach more people. So I have to say, first and foremost, that all of that super fantastic work um, is is the work of a, she was a, a Yale student named Kathy Min, um, and she conducted all of those interviews. It was her undergrad thesis. And she is a, a grew up in Idaho and is um, of Asian descent. And so that was, it was her project that we, we sort of helped her with and then offered to um, uh, help publicize by putting on the website. But she, she did all of that um, interviewing. She contacted different interviewees. Um, I think she put out a call in the newsletter for people who might be interested and then also, you know, worked through various um, methods to contact those people. And her, her thesis is definitely worth reading. It's, it's um, But as you said, like every one of those interviews is really great to, to read through. And then I think they were all done over Zoom. So there are recordings of them. Um, and if we have permission slips to share those, we certainly can do that. It's, it's oh, that They're all really archived cool. at the AACC. Um, and then Kathy will be publishing an article in the, the, the Journal of Northwest Anthropology on her work coming up. Um, and I do think she might be continuing the project. Um, I'm not exactly sure what she's doing in the future, but I know she was, she wanted us to put her contact information on the website. So it's up there in case yeah. anyone else would like to. Um, Can you spell her you? name? So, so, cause I'm guessing we're going to try to rope her in as another guest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Kathy K-A-T-H-Y and then Min, M-I-N. Okay. Okay. And, and sure. if you look at the website, her contact information, I believe is on there. If not, um, let me know and I can get it to you. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, one of the really cool things about working at the AACC is is we really are a, a facility that like supports the research of other people. And so we get these requests and, and a lot of times we get student requests. So Kathy was a student at Yale um, who was looking to do research on Asians and Asian Americans in Idaho who had, whose families had immigrated post-1965. And so she just reached out to us and asked if we'd be interested in partnering. And, and then because of that, you know, connection, I get to sort of... <laughs> be be part of this project sort of observe it and see other people do do really great research and i always learn so much from from the projects that we get involved in but we have you know we're mostly geared towards archaeology so we get a lot of requests from archaeologists but we also get requests from historians or people even who are looking into their own family history i think one of the cooler appointments that we had or i shouldn't say that because they're all really interesting but but one of the ones that was really a surprise to me recently we had a man contact us because he's um, a musician who is writing an opera about his family's history and his family his 
I believe it was his grandfather had immigrated to San Francisco, was from China, had immigrated to San Francisco in the 1870s and then had traveled out to South Dakota. And he, he was setting this opera based on his family history and wanted to see the artifacts in our collection to make sure that he got like the, the settings right for the opera. And so he came to visit. And, and that kind of research request is always so different from what we normally do. <laughs> sure. That's fun. really fun. And I also was like, oh, I really want to hear your opera. When you <laughs> How can I come visit when you haven't host your opera? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's the perfect one to bring family to. It's like, I know, I know you're not too interested, at least for me, it's for my family. I know you're not too interested in the work I'm doing, but hey, I contributed to this opera. So. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So I've got a question regarding, um, on just continuing on, on the archaeology side of things. Um, like restaurant wares, ceramics and stuff like that, right? I like I like as any CRM or you know we we do a bit of everything, right? Yeah. And so when I look at ceramics, especially Euro American, Euro Canadian ceramics, we always look at the manufacturer's mark, the maker's mark, right? But I know there were a few times when we encounter uh, Asian ceramics or Chinese ceramics uh, specifically, they don't have manufacturers maker's mark right i think it's all based on art style right and i know on 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 your website you have examples of of so of ceramics that have maker's mark and i i'm going to presume that's that's more uh that'd be influenced by more your your american style right yeah, so, so so as an archaeologist and i've I come across a, a an obviously an asian ceramic right how would i go around identifying it that's a great question um so i think just to kind of answer the first part of your question when you're the restaurant wares on our website that you're referring to. Yes. That's a, it's a large collection of um, restaurant wares from a particular manufacturer, FS Louie, who is, who is a Chinese American immigrant, but his factory was in Berkeley, California. Um, and he supplied restaurant wares to a lot of um, Chinese restaurants in the early 20th century. Um, some of the, just to kind of complicate things, <laughs> some of yeah. the, Ceramics were actually manufactured in Japan during that period, and then, but he designed them and 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 imported them, and then Chinese American restaurants all over um, purchased them from him. And there are a couple of researchers who are doing some really cool research on specifically FS Louis, where the from Berkeley, um, Lori Wilkie, and and then from and there's another uh, um, archaeologist Kelly Fong. And those two are, are working on that um, project and have looked at some of the catalogs in our collection. But then they're also looking at um, sort of the family connections between different um, Chinese American restaurants and who are buying those. And so there are marks on those wares, I guess, when I'm <laughs> to circle back to that, there are marks on those wares. Um, luckily, that also change over time. So some of those you can date based on the the style of the mark on the base. Um, but you're right that a lot of Asian manufactured ceramics don't have maker's marks in the way that, that Euro-American ceramics do. Um, both Chinese and Japanese ceramics um, will sometimes have marks on the base, but they, they are usually not as nice as like Bristol, England with a registry mark or, you know, a dead date for you. Um, some are, some Japanese wares will say, you know, the, the kiln where they were produced. Some I've seen Japanese wares that are signed by the potter, but the, there's not like a comprehensive list of potters that you can compare that to yet. Um, and then Chinese wares will sometimes have marks on the base that are they're based on an older style mark that's called a rain mark and it was it, they typically would have like said the 
the emperor who was reigning when that ceramic was manufactured. So, so originally they were applied to ceramics and it would tell you what year they were made in. But then because that became sort of a stylistic convention, those marks are copied and translated um, on subsequent ceramics. And so a lot of them um, become sort of illegible or they'll say, uh, you know, I've seen Japanese ceramics that have the reign of a Chinese emperor on them. That's obviously a forgery trying to convince Japanese consumers that it's a older piece of Chinese porcelain. <laughs> um, so, so it does get, you know, a little complicated. Um, th- so the, the best way to identify those wares um, becomes more on, on form and decorative styles is the way that, that most um, archaeologists try to identify them. And, and Chinese ceramics have had a lot more research done on them. Um, and there are um, a number of, of styles that are pretty well known and documented and then um, show up kind of consistently at Chinese sites. So, so wintergreen bowls or a green glaze um, that shows up a lot. There's a Four Seasons flower pattern that shows up a lot. Um, and then Japanese ceramics have had less uh, research done on them. And, and there's also um, sort of this, there's there's not as many um, defined patterns. There are motifs that repeat or are like translated in different ways. Um, but they, there are like an infinite number of, of design combinations on Japanese wares. Um, and so the research in that area is really I think still pretty new. See, and this is this is where this is where the AACC becomes invaluable because I I because there there are archaeologists, CRMers working on Asian American sites, Chinese and Japanese, right? And we do find pottery and ceramics, and and a lot, lot like like I said before, a lot of CRMs first thing we do look at the maker's mark, and so this is where you become invaluable that we we have to change our thinking. Don't look at the maker's mark; we look at the art style, you know, because that that's that's important. That tells you that the the the, 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 the history the history of that style and stuff like that. So. So this is where we had to change our thinking. Like, like we're all trained and thinking in terms of in the European context. Yeah. And we're not, but we're we're not aware of the Asian context, and we should be because North America has been populated by various people from around the world. But but all the archaeology, all the historical archaeology, and, and granted because of demographics, have been focused on on the European context. But and because of that, because we're so zoned into that, and when we when we encounter pottery from from non from that's not European, we still think of of in a European context and how to examine it and stuff like that. And yeah. so, because I the reason I'm saying that because I remember we had I had the debate with a colleague of mine, you know, because he was still thinking in terms of the European context. He was still asking, "Where's the maker's mark? Where's the maker's mark?" And I keep telling him, "There's none." Well, I should say there's none. There is, but it's it's ingrained in the artwork. And I think he had a he had a hard time um, uh, processing that. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is where. As, as as an Asian Canadian archaeologist, this is where I could provide a valuable insight because I'm aware that you know you, we we cannot look at it this way. We had you know we we have to be more open minded about something like this, and so that's why I think AACC becomes a very valuable tool to use. Which means like you, which means it's only you and Priscilla working on this. Well, no, there. Are, I mean, we share the work of many. There are there are lots of archaeologists working on this, but I think we certainly the reason that things like the artifact illustrations on our website or um, the the website that came out of my my um, master's research is a, is on Japanese ceramics. Um, the reason that those I think are important is because of what you were saying, right? Of like how many historical archaeologists are trained to identify Asian American 
artifacts, like how many historical archaeology, you know, you, you're supposed to take artifact analysis classes and identification classes. And, and I know that I was trained on the East Coast, so maybe it's different, but like I never had training in that. And oh. you would expect any, any, even in CRM, you would expect any, you know, field tech on your project to be able to identify a few different types of lithics and a few different types of cans, but you might not in that same context where you're equally as likely to run into Asian American sites, you wouldn't necessarily expect someone to be trained in Asian material culture. And I, I, and if, I, think, I think that's where it becomes uh, difficult because then we're, we're stuck because right? if they don't, if they don't realize that the, that the artwork is important, right? They just, they just fluff it off and say it's Asian American or they may not. And therefore, they just generalize it as that. They didn't, so therefore not looking more into whether it was, whether it was Chinese or Japanese. Right. And, and if you don't do that, they're misinterpreting the site. Right. Well, and then you run into the dangerous thing of saying, as far as you get with your research is we think it's Asian and, and yep. <laughs> you decide, well, all Asian sites are just lumped in together and they're all the same. And well, um, yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, yeah. And Very used might, to that in CRM. Yeah. You might as well lump all the sites as you're, you're American. Right. Without realizing this could be Irish or Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the alternative, I mean, what people could do just as easily is look at a, a prehistory, pre-contact site and say, mm-hmm, it's Native American, completely disregarding all the tribal interest groups in the area and who you should be reaching out to based on, you know, the location of where that site is and everything like that. You're looking at these, uh, you know, Asian, the, these historic American Asian uh, or uh, Canadian, Asian, Canadian, Asian, American. Whoops, I have it mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> what episode is this again? But you're looking at these sites and and completely disregarding that. And yeah, I, I wish that was taught more in school. And somehow thinking that they're less worthy of the type of in-depth research questions that right ask of other sites or exactly yeah and i and i have to say too i think it was back in 2018 maybe 2019 i remember i I recall now it was it was you at the um asian uh, diaspora symposium talking about your thesis and this amazing website that you put together um for uh historical japanese ceramic comparative collections and it is phenomenal i remember coming back to the crm i was working at at the time and then sharing they didn't take it they didn't they didn't remember it <laughs> but, but uh, I, I shared this website with with everybody in my office because it's phenomenal mm-hmm. it's really really great and well put together oh, even well, thank you for trying <laughs> yeah uh, thank you i think that I mean, I hope that it's useful for people. That's why that's why one of the things about digital technology that I think is is so cool. And I know that in in CRM, you know, everyone's working on limited budgets or if you work for an agency like the Forest Service or the BLM, you also have a limited budget. Um, And so my hope was that by putting something on the Internet where someone could find something in the field and type in Japanese ceramics and pictures and hopefully get at least like some basic understanding of what type of vessel is it? You know, when was it likely? manufactured um that that could sort of seep into the literature and then and then because it's digital i i hope that it keeps growing i've added yeah. to it over time and our japanese translator has has worked on some of it now and um has has added um japanese language translations of most of the terms in on there um and has there's, been a, some stuff. there's a way for people to submit to this too right there's a Correct. at least the contact information portion of this website where people can 
contribute to this mm-hmm. research? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, they could either just contact me or there is my contact information on the site as well. Um, if, pe- if anyone was interested in contributing more examples to it, because I, I would like to see it grow. As I, as I mentioned about Japanese ceramics, like one of the, the really um, challenging things about analyzing them is, is there's just so many different combinations of patterns and styles and so little research that's been done. Um, that there's a lot more out there that I think could be added. My question is like um, the the AACC, like uh, it's gone for 40 years and I, sooner or later, I think Priscilla might want to retire or she might <laughs> want to pass, pass it on to somebody else to inherit it, right? Like, what do you yeah. see, Renee? Like, I, so it sounds like you might be the person to inherit it, whole collection. Well, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure the person who inherits it, um, Priscilla has been... Um, she started, I want to say in the 90s, I believe, but I could be wrong. She started an endowment for it. So the, the AACC was started in 1982. Um, and then I believe in the 90s, she started an endowment with the intention that um, it would take in donations from people uh, into a fund that would grow over time and eventually fund a at least part-time curator position because Priscilla has been a volunteer her entire time with the with the AACC Um and so her hope is that when she retires, that money is available to hire someone to, to really dedicate more time to the collection. And I think what Priscilla has done a really amazing job of is growing the materials in the collection, right? It's now we have a lot of um, artifacts and bibliographic materials that, that are all consolidated in one place. And I don't think another collection really exists like it. Um, and she's also laid a lot of the groundwork so that if someone actually came in and had the time to do the type of projects that... Um, you know, she was describing more outreach and 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 more support of, of student projects and things, um, more collaboration with different um, agencies and things. I think it, it could be um, it could very easily uh, be something that that led to, you know, I think we're we're doing what we can right now with with the resources available. But I think, you know, it, if someone had more time to dedicate to it, it could definitely um, make an even larger impact, I would hope. Yeah, that sounds like it hasn't changed because since I looked at it since the 90s, it sounds like Priscilla's still going, <laughs> she's still keeping this afloat and I kudos to her. Yeah. So let's do a little bit of a pie in the sky then question. So if you can get infinite funding, mm. what would you like to do? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that, that we would want was a little more space. <laughs> <laughs> Video building. <laughs> we're in the video. And I will say that since then, we were super lucky last year. We um, applied for a grant and got funding for an undergraduate intern who came in and has reorganized our drawers and split them. So we at least now are not stacked quite so high, but space is still an issue. Um, so, so space would be up there. I would also love to digitize more things. Um, because as we're talking about, I think accessibility for people um, would be great. I'd love to see our collections also put into things like um, Archives West, which is like a library collections database so that people who were searching other archives could also find archaeology materials. Um, and and then, yeah, I think I would, I would love to see the AACC start like running projects or partnering with other people on projects. Um, it would be great if we could do that in a way, um, you know, that I think the AACC has done contract stuff before where we'll analyze artifacts or something for someone, but, but usually money is the, <laughs> money is always the, the linchpin there. Um, 
Yeah. And that is why you should subscribe to the newsletter because it directly funds their work. Thank you very much. <laughs> we did a small archaeological dig. I think Priscilla mentioned it in the first half at the Polybemus Ranch last mm-hmm. um, semester. Uh, that was that was AACC run, and then we got a really generous donation that's funding the student um, the student to analyze the materials that we recovered, and we'll eventually have a report that comes out of that. But that was a. a I think more work like that would be pretty cool because as you guys probably know, right in archeology, span it's so rare that you get to pick your own projects and (laughs) decide this thing needs more research or that thing needs more research. (laughs) I think it would be cool to be able to uh, sort of direct that in, in those directions. Now, now was that excavation, was that treated like a field school? It was not technically a field school. No. So um, the students got compensated for their time, but they didn't get like field school credit. Gotcha. So it was was just because it had to be really small. So Polly Bemis lived um, up a river on a ranch that even today you can only access by jet boat. Uh. (laughs) And so it was, it was open to the public. It was a public project, but the only people that came by were rafters who were rafting the river. (laughs) 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 So yeah, that, I mean, that's just the logistics of getting the people and the gear out. And it was a, it's a private, it's a group of owners who own it privately and they were kind enough. So it's private property. They were kind enough to let us come on and and run the project. And um, they also just had limited space. So we only had, you know, room for, I think there were eight of us um, to do it. So, so it just didn't make a bunch of sense to go through field school accreditation for that. But it'd be really cool to see the center put on more excavations like that moving forward though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. We're well, going to start wrapping up. I'm just going to go to everybody for any last words. So I'm going to go with Brian because he's been quiet. So um, with your collection, what what would, since like you're low on budget or what in particular, how are you going to take care of your collection since mm-hmm. it's just going to keep on growing? Um, well, so we do, we do have an endowment um, that is, is glow is growing. Um, and then, the, the university provides the space that we are currently in, in rent free, but um, the the endowment should cover the cost of, of at least someone part time. And then we're also part of a larger laboratory um, of anthropology uh, that has staff too. So I think it's, it's pretty secure. We also, you know, we have a couple larger collections that were donated as as um, large collections and and a lot of those have, or a couple of those have contracts that go with them that say like, if anything ever happened to the AACC, then the collection as a whole would have to go to some other museum. Um, So there are like some contingencies like that in place, but, but in theory, the endowment should, should at least keep the AACC materials as they currently are. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're, um, I, I, I think that your uh, the work that you and uh, Priscilla do is very admirable, and you. Uh, you know the potential for your repository to keep on growing. It's definitely there. It's there, and it's very exciting. Okay, Emma, you got any last words? No, I don't think so. I just think it's cool this exists. Did you have you heard about this before? No. See, stick with us. You you learn things. <laughs> Well, hey, Carol. You guys yeah. are doing this podcast, so yeah. you guys can get up too. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for coming on. You're helping get the word out. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get all your information. I'm gonna post it on our website so people know that you guys exist. So. Great. Okay, Daryl. What? <laughs> we're gonna wrap it up. 
Um, I'm just very, very grateful that you came on here to, you know, answer all of our questions and have this wonderful conversation. Um, and I hope that eventually you'll come back on with some great news about the expansion and wonderful, amazing donations and the increase of subscriptions. That's, that's what I hope for the next time. <laughs> you're, making, you're making me feel guilty because I, because I, because I, Left my subscription, died. No, so. no, no, Tommy. This is what you're supposed to say. I'm so excited. I'm going to start a subscription right away. Okay. I'm going to do it right away. <laughs> you can do it on our website. You can there you do go. it right through the website. Twenty ten dollars Canadian. I mean, fifteen Canadian, ten yeah. US. Yeah. <laughs> this counts for Canadians. <laughs> Okay, Anna, any last words? Um, no last. I mean, no last questions or anything. But I, I'm. I'm so thrilled, like Emma said, that this exists. And like I said earlier, I caught a whiff of your thesis and your website and your research, Renee, back before this pandemic came about. Um, and it's just, it's very exciting to continue to see the work that you and Priscilla are doing continue to evolve and continue to reach me and others. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how it grows further moving forward from even here. And I'm with Anna. I want this thing to continue forever. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm gonna. We're all gonna post all your all your other social media accounts because I know you have an Instagram. We do, and that is that's all we have at the moment. But we have an Instagram. <laughs> yeah, because I do it because I follow you guys. Yeah. So, do you want to plug it? Yeah. You do you want to plug there, Renee? Um. Yeah. Now I have to remember what our Instagram is. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've actually got it open. If you want. Okay. Is it aacc underscore ui? I uh, underscore u Idaho. There we go. That's, yep. That's we a have great an account. account where we um, occasionally post things, try to post things. And we have the website that uh, we have recently redone. Um, and so there are a few pages that haven't migrated yet. Include, but one of those that we haven't quite migrated is the um, artifact identification. So if you watch the website within the next few months, we should actually have all new photos of artifacts coming up. Um, you mean the artifact illustration part? Exactly. Yep. You'll notice Very that that cool. is still linked See, to the old site. That's familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how I looked at it back in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. We've more, been slowly redoing photos. our website. And, and part of what's holding it up is I had to retake all of the photos. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to take really good photos. <laughs> all right. I think that's it. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank thank you. you so much for having me. And thank you to Priscilla for coming on. And uh, I hope you have fun. I hope, hope we didn't scare you too much, intimidate you too much <laughs> or interrogation. So I would, uh, I'm def I, I love it when, uh, when I see stuff on the Instagram because I know you follow me too. So, because I'm awesome. So, <laughs> I think I follow a couple of you guys. Yeah, I don't know who's running it, but I've interacted with that account several times, or I'll post something and that account will heart it. And I'm just like, aw, who yeah. are you? Because <laughs> we're, we're awesome. Okay, that's good. I'm more awesome than you guys, but just let you guys know. Oh, okay, God. sure. Yeah. All right. So long. Goodbye, Renee. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very Bye. much. Bye. I'll be Thank you to everyone for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, please head over to our Anchor website and leave a comment below the episode. While you're there, be sure to check out the show notes for links to anything we've mentioned in this episode. We would like to thank everyone who has supported us and hope that you'll be back for the next one. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Head. 
And you can contact her at archiefantasies at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>